Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right. Great to see you there this morning. Thanks, Wes. Uh, it makes me glad that I don't have my sermon notes up on the screen behind me so people can't correct me when I get things wrong, like the date of baptism. So, thanks, man. Appreciate it, though. Happy Palm Sunday to everybody. Great to see you here this morning. I think it's really appropriate for us to be ending the book of James and what we're going to be talking about this morning on Palm Sunday because as we close this book out, really, which we know as we've gone through this, is a letter that was written by James who was, of course, Jesus' brother but also one of the most influential church leaders in the early early church in the first century, that this was a letter written to first century Christians. And as we get to the end of this letter, James has taken us through all kinds of different topics. This has been a challenging book, I think, for many of us, and one of the most challenging parts about it has been James calling us to action out of our faith. And we've talked about things like uh, what it means for us to walk in humility, what wisdom looks like, what it means for a healthy church community to come together, uh, to be in unity, to care for one another, and all those things. All these things that James has talked to us about throughout this book. Now, when we get to the end of the letter, though, today, he's going to talk to us about one of the things that he wants really us to hear. These are kind of his last words, if you will, his last words to his readers as they're reading this letter. The last thing that he wants them to hear is this instruction about prayer. So we're going to be talking a lot about prayer this morning, and I think this is a really good topic for us to be talking about in church as much as we can. First of all, it's super important. It's a a big part of what it means for us to be in relationship with God is what does our prayer life look like? What is prayer all about? And then secondly, I think uh, another reason why it's so important for us to talk about prayer is because for many people that I've talked to, they are just dissatisfied with their prayer life. In fact, I come across very few people who are actually completely satisfied with their prayer life. For some, it's because of them that they feel like they're not satisfied with their prayer life. In other words, they wish they could pray more. They wish they actually wanted to pray more, if they're honest. They don't actually even want to pray that much, but they wish they would pray more. They wish their prayers were more powerful. They wish they could articulate their prayers a little better than they do. Sometimes they get prayer envy. They hear other people pray in the way that they would want to pray, and from their perspective, they wish they could pray like that. Some people are just dissatisfied with the results of prayer. And if they're honest, a little dissatisfied with God in prayer. They pray, and they pray, and they pray, and nothing seems to happen, at least from their perspective. And so, I guess this drives us to this question, what exactly are we supposed to expect from prayer? If someone were to ask you what a good prayer life looks like, how would you answer that? Maybe that's a little bit of a big question this morning, maybe a little bit too big to answer on a Sunday morning. So how about this? What are we, what, what, uh, if you had someone who doesn't, who doesn't pray come to you and ask you, like, I know that you pray, so can you tell me exactly what the point of prayer is and why I should consider praying? How would you answer that question? How would you respond to that? It's okay if you don't know the answer, because we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about what is the purpose of prayer, what should prayer look like from what James tells us as he closes out this book. Now, here's a bit of a heads up this morning. We're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, of course, to finish out the book. bit of a heads up is that as we get through this passage, um, there are some sticky interpretive issues that we kind of come across in this. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, if you're familiar with this passage and you know what those issues are, we're not going to spend a lot of time going into the theological weeds. That's not really the purpose, I don't think, overall of this passage. Instead, what we're going to focus on more is, again, this idea of what we're to expect from prayer, what is prayer all about, those kinds of things. 
And so there are some issues that we'll hit lightly on, but we're not going to go deep into that. Uh, maybe that's something for your own personal study. If you really like getting in the theological weeds that you can get involved in, or maybe in your community group you can talk about those things or something like that. But we're going to focus on this idea of prayer and what James is ultimately getting at, this bigger picture idea. So with that being said, we've got a lot to talk about this morning. Let's start into chapter 5. Verses 13 through 20, and James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, so beginning this section, James hits on a topic that he's hit on a lot throughout this book, this idea or this question of suffering and approaching trials. And he uses that phrase, if any of you have suffering, kind of as an umbrella statement that could literally mean a, a whole bunch of things. But then he gets more specific and talks about specifically what he's addressing in this passage, which is those who are suffering because they are sick. And then he begins to talk about what we should do in those situations. First of all, that person, of course, should be in prayer, but also that the community of the church should rally around that person who is sick or and or that person who is wandering and come alongside them, rally around them, and contend with them in prayer. So that the elders who represent the church but also represent kind of a specific position of authority, especially in those, in, those, in those dire situations where someone is really sick, to come to their aid and to pray for them, even anointing them with oil. And so this is kind of a picture of what it looks like for the community to pray together. Now, a few of the things that we read through that James says here in this passage may be a little, you might have a question about. In particular, the question about what does it mean uh, in terms of healing? What is James talking about? Is he talking about physical healing? Is he talking about spiritual healing? Because the context seems to be physical healing, but at the same time, he uses words that sound a lot like spiritual healing, like forgiveness for sins, being raised up. What exactly do those things mean? Well, I think as James is talking about it, what we see is that these things are actually connected. He is actually drawing a connection between the physical well-being and the spiritual well-being, including things like emotional and mental well-being as well. We are people as whole beings who are who, who, who participate in life and who, of course, are created this way so that God is desiring to bring healing even to those who are sick physically. It affects all areas of their lives. So what exactly does this look like? Well, Richard Foster, I think, in his book on prayer, uh, if you don't know who Richard Foster is, he's an author. He's also written Celebration of Discipline. You might be uh, familiar with that. Um, but he also wrote a great book on prayer. And in the, in the book on prayer, he talks about a man that he met who was a World War II soldier. And the man, while he was in the war, led a group or a company of 33 men into an area where they were surrounded in battle. And when he realized they were surrounded and they were being ambushed, he prayed to God in that moment that God would protect them. As a a result of the battle, though, they lost 27 out of 33 of the men in his company. And so only six men survived, including himself. 
After that experience, he swore off of believing in God and proclaimed himself an atheist because he didn't feel like God answered his prayer at that moment. And so several years later, though, Richard Foster meets him, and they're having a conversation about this, and the guy is saying, well, since that time has happened, I've become an atheist, and now uh, I haven't slept, really, a full night. I haven't slept well since that event happened several years ago, and this is several years in the future. And so Richard Foster asks if he can pray for him. And he prays for the man in that moment. And he sees the man a week later after his prayer. And he said he had prayed specifically for things like his mental health, his emotional well-being, and yes, even that he would sleep better at night. And he sees the man a week later, and the man said, you know, that prayer that you prayed for me, I think, had some kind of an effect. Because I've slept every night since you prayed, all the way through, like I haven't slept in years. And I also wake up with hymns on my mind that, I'm, that I just start singing just out of nowhere when I wake up in the morning. And what Richard Foster said is that in that moment he learned how much the spiritual, the physical, the mental, or the emotional health is all kind of integrated together. And so when we read something like this and James talks about the physical and the spiritual going together and how sin affects kind of all of it, It is prayer where we seek God, and and it is prayer where we see God work in those things. That's what James is talking about. The righteous man, the prayer that the righteous man gives, avails or produces much. This is why James says that whether someone is suffering from sickness or wandering in sin, it's the calling of the church community to come alongside that person, to seek them out, and to pray for them. But returning to the main point of this passage, of course, which is about prayer and how it works, what does it mean when James says that the prayer of faith will heal the sick person? Does that mean that every time we pray for someone who is sick, that they get healed? Now you may know by experience that that doesn't happen in every case, especially in the timetable that we want it to happen, which brings central questions about prayer to the table. What is the point of prayer And what should we expect from our prayers? There tends to be two extremes when it comes to answering these kinds of questions. On the one extreme is the one that wants to highlight, of course, and rightfully so, the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign in all things. That God's will will be accomplished in all cases and all situations. But on the extreme, what that begins to get into in this question of prayer is kind of this feeling or this perspective of determinism. In other words, if God is going to do what he's going to do, what difference do my prayers make anyway? Do my prayers actually change anything? Do my prayers actually have an impact in the world or in someone's life? And in the end, if we go too far down that extreme, we may even believe that God doesn't even really hear our prayers, or if he does hear our prayers, that our prayers are just kind of merely religious exercise. Because in the end, they don't really make an impact anyway. I think this approach seems to be at odds with what James says here. Where James seems convinced that our prayers matter. I mean, if he didn't think our prayers matter, I doubt he would have told us to pray for sick people so that they can be healed. Even saying to the point that the prayer will save someone who is sick. And that any time is sick, we're to gather around and to pray for that person who is sick or who is wandering. And if we're reading these words for what they say, I don't think there's any other conclusion to come to other than that our prayers have power and that our prayer makes an impact in this world and in the lives of other people. So the extreme that approaches prayer as a mere formality, believing that God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway, is, I believe, at odds with what the Bible tells us, especially here in James. Now, the other extreme 
course about faithful prayer is to say that whatever we ask for, as long as we have enough faith, God will give it to us. And it's just a matter of how much faith we have in terms of what we get and how much we get from God. We know this approach by a few different names. The Name It, Claim It movement, Health and Wealth Gospel, right? If you want something and you name it and you just have enough faith, you can have it, whatever it is. It's also popularized by the Word of Faith movement, so that if you want wealth, you just have to have enough faith. If you want healing, you just have to have enough faith and God will give it to you. If you want that job, if you just have enough faith, God will give it all to you. And in the end, from this perspective, the only reason that we don't get everything that we want is because we simply don't have enough faith. And so that leaves the person who is sick, of course, and praying for health and continues to be sick in the place where they basically are sick and feel like they are sick only because they don't have enough faith. There are plenty of places in Scripture where we can see how this perspective also doesn't line up with Scripture, including Paul's thorn-in-the-flesh passage from 2 Corinthians 12. But really, we don't have to go any further than the book of James to see how this perspective also violates God's word on prayer. In James chapter 4, James tells us that he calls many of these types of prayers the wrong motive prayers in terms of in terms of asking for whatever we want and expecting God to give it all to us. So we want to stay away from either extreme because in reality, neither comes from a biblical balance that we get in Scripture regarding both the balance of God's sovereignty but also the understanding that our prayers do make a difference. So how do we rectify those two things? Well, I think instead, instead uh, we should be able to say what the Bible says about prayer and not feel the need to say more than what the Bible has to say about how prayer works. We don't, in other words, we don't have to explain the tension away between God being sovereign and between our prayers having impact because Scripture, uh, scripture clearly says both. The Bible says our prayers matter and the Bible says at the same time that God is sovereign and he will accomplish his will. So how those things work out and really how those things, two things work together is a matter of a little bit of understanding and really, I think, a lot of mystery. And it seems like God wants it that way. Part of letting God be God is allowing mystery to have its say. Is allowing us to be able to say, I don't know how that works exactly, but I know what God tells me about it. And releasing the need to know everything that God knows about why he does what he does. Because that would make us God, and of course, we are not. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, of course, reminds us of this. God says to us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think when we take that in faith, we can be good with that perspective. And I mentioned Paul's example of praying about the thorn in the flesh. I think this is a really good example of what this looks like in real life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Verses 7 through 9, Paul says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that, the power, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Now notice this. Paul describes this thing that he calls a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is because he doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but I think the best explanation for this is that somehow this is a physical or medical ailment that Paul is dealing with. And Paul prays over and over again for God to heal it, but apparently God does not heal it. And eventually Paul gets the answer where God simply says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. So there's a little bit of answer and understanding there, but then there's a whole lot of mystery and tension that Paul still has to deal with. Right? If I'm praying faithfully and God decides not to heal me and he doesn't tell me how it is that I got this ailment or if it's ever going to end, he just responds and says, my grace is sufficient for you. He has given me understanding and invited me to trust him in the midst of the tension and the mystery of not knowing exactly why things are happening the way that they are. Paul prays in the midst of it repeatedly in faith. And so we can't say, on the other hand, that Paul didn't have enough faith. I mean, I don't want to make that claim this morning, do you? Anybody want to accuse the Apostle Paul of not having enough faith, right? And so obviously it wasn't because of his lack of faith that God didn't heal him, but again, God doesn't tell him exactly why other than my grace is sufficient for you. And this is so that my power will be made evident in you. So since our prayers matter, and since God has a purpose for our prayer life, let's talk about what this passage says about prayer and what to expect. In other words, what does a good prayer life look like? Why has God given us prayer and what does he want it to look like? Most notably, how should we approach prayer? I think there's a few ways we should approach prayer from a biblical perspective. And the first one is to simply pray with your heart. You know, prayer itself is simply talking to God from our heart. So when we come to God in prayer, we should should feel free to pray with honesty and pray from our heart, even pray our desires unfiltered at times. Notice that James says in the beginning, if any of you is suffering, pray. If any of you is cheerful, let him sing praise, which is another way of praying. It's like praying through song. In all things, in other words, in all things and in everything, come to God with prayer and praise. Prayer should be a natural rhythm and an expression of our lives and our hearts. No matter where we are, what we are experiencing, God wants to hear from us. He wants to hear how it's affecting us. He wants to hear what's on our hearts, what's in our minds as we converse with him. And God delights in our responses. He delights in our thoughts no matter what we're facing and how we are facing it. One of the most frequent images that we see when Jesus talks about prayer in the Gospels in particular is the image of a little child going to his father. In fact, Jesus actually tells the disciples, you need to become like little children in your prayer life as you approach the father. Now, if you have kids or small grandkids, think about what that means from God's perspective, especially in reference to little kids. I mean, kids just come to their parents or their grandparents without pretense, right? They don't feel like they need to clean themselves up or say the right words to get our attention. They are concerned about whether you're busy or not. In fact, it's in those times that you're busiest that kids tend to want to interrupt you and get your attention. Have you noticed that before? There's been so many times where I've been, they don't care if you're in a conversation at all. They don't care if they're interrupting anything that you're doing. There's been so many times that I've been in like a serious conversation, especially during kind of the Zoom era that we're in right now, right, where I'm at home and I'm in a meeting, I'm in a conversation, and my kid just busts through the door. Doesn't care that I'm on a meeting at all. Doesn't care that I might even be praying for somebody. Doesn't care that we're in some huge discussion that has, you know, these consequences that we're, we're, we're discussing through just comes in and, dad, 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 dad. 
And I have four kids now, and so I'm now at the place where my youngest, does, I don't respond to my youngest uh, with, with the kind of urgency probably that he wants, because I'm just so used to kids doing that in my life, all throughout my life for the past several years. But he'll persist in dad, 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 with the kind of urgency that makes you think that it's life and death. Now in my mind, I know 99.9% of the time it is not life or death, it's not even an emergency. But I gotta be concerned about that 0.1%, right? Because <laughs> as soon as you ignore him, it's that 0.1%. And so I eventually respond to him, and typically it's something really, really mundane. Like, Dad, my shoe's untied, can you tie it for me? Really, you just broke into the, my office to ask me to tie it? Or he wanted to tell me about the bug that he saw on the ground at recess or something like that, right? But that's what kids do. They come without pretense, and they just want to talk to you, and they're in many times really self-absorbed, which makes them just come as they are, messy and silly and inarticulate, and yet full of trust, with a full trust that you're going to hear them, and that the thing that they're thinking about is the most important thing in the world to them at that moment, and it should be for you too. We learn something important from praying like a child. We pray our hearts to our Heavenly Father who is never too busy to hear from us. He's never too busy to listen to us. He delights in hearing even the most mundane thing. You can tell him about that bug you saw at recess. You can tell him about that coworker that's driving you crazy. He wants to hear it all. And for many of us, we don't pray because we don't feel like we have it all together to pray. We feel like we need to clean ourselves up, find the right place at the right time to wait until all things are quiet so that we can have just that special time to pray with God. And look, those times are great, they're precious, they're wonderful, but I don't know how many of you have small kids at how many how many of you have small kids at home? How many of you, have, if you have small kids, actually have a time or a place where it's quiet for more than five minutes? And if we're waiting for all of that before we pray, we would never pray. And maybe that's why we don't pray as much as we want to. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, this great reminder. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Look, it's wonderful that we can go with confidence to the throne of grace. I think one thing that is, is, is important to remember about this is that the writer of Hebrews describes the type of, 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 of person who goes to this place, uh, to the throne of grace. A person who is in need, a person who wants to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. That the occasion of prayer is when we need grace and mercy, when we are desperate, confidently approaching that throne of grace. Paul Miller says this, the very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door when it comes to prayer. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with a wandering mind. Come messy. And so we pray with our hearts. We also pray with humility. Now, if you missed the theme of humility in the book of James, uh, you missed a lot. Please go back and read the book again if you missed the theme of humility, because humility is a huge point in this book. And what James shows us is that humility goes hand in hand with things like wisdom and faith. And humility and prayer recognizes two important things about prayer. First of all, that prayer is an act of worship. And true worship of God requires humility. The second thing is that prayer implies dependence. As we mentioned, when we come to God in prayer, we are coming to God out of need. And this is one of those driving forces in prayer many times. Many times we come to the end of ourselves and what actually causes us to pray is realizing how completely desperate we are for God 
to move, for God to provide. Again, going back to Jesus' teachings on prayer, what you'll find over and over again is that he presents parables about prayer and situations and images about prayer where typically the one who is praying is someone who is typically a person who is completely dependent on others to provide for them. So little children, he also talks about widows, which at that time, widows, if they didn't have a husband, didn't have anybody to provide for them, so they were completely dependent upon someone else providing for them. Jesus even tells a parable about a man who, who knocks on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night to wake him up because he's so desperate for something that he needs. And he knocks and he knocks and he knocks until that man finally comes to the door because the man was desperate for what he needed. And of course, what do all those examples tell us about prayer? The desperation before God. People who are dependent and asking. And maybe you're asking, well, should I always come to God that desperate? I don't always feel that desperate. And really the reason I think that we don't feel that desperate is because we don't realize exactly how desperate we are. As modern day Americans, we're bent on being everything that is not desperate. We're self-sufficient, we're as independent as possible, and being desperate and dependent works against the entire ethos of who we believe ourselves to be. Even in our prayers, so many times we pray for the things that will make us independent of God. We go through a time of waiting or a time of suffering or a time of difficulty that has caused us to be dependent upon God and then we want to pray for all of those things to be removed as quickly as possible so that we can go back to being independent from God. So we pray for all the things that help give us control over our circumstances again, whether it's money, comfort, security, rights, health, whatever it may be. I think, in fact, in modern-day America, it can be one of the most difficult places in history to actually cultivate a good prayer life. Listen to what Paul Miller says. American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize things like accomplishments and production. But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless, as if we are wasting time. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. And because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Of course, this week is the week that we know as Holy Week or Passion Week. As we celebrate Palm Sunday this morning, we look at this entire week as it leads up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the most memorable things that happened during that last week regarding prayer is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 39, gives us a window into what that looks like. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the ultimate prayer of humility. Did you catch this? It was a sacrifice of comfort, security, rights, health, all of it. So that Jesus could say and submit himself to the very will of God. It was the ultimate prayer of humility as modeled for us as well. So pray with humility, also pray with expectation. I think one of the main reasons that people are not completely satisfied with their prayer life is that they don't, of course, they don't think that they pray enough. And I think certainly one of the reasons that we don't pray, and let's just be honest here, is that we don't actually believe that prayer always works. We don't actually believe that it makes that much of a difference. I think if we did, we would pray more. 
Again, one of the things from the book of James that James tells us over and over again is that our faith, true faith, is exercised in action. When it comes to prayer, if we aren't prayerful people, it doesn't matter what we say we believe about prayer. The proof is in the prayer pudding, so to speak. Do we pray or not? If we do, we believe that prayer works. If we don't, we got to question whether or not we actually believe that it makes any difference at all. We're told in James pretty clearly, as well as many other uh, places in Scripture, that prayer does make a difference. Think about, again, the way that Jesus teaches about prayer. I think if we, were to, if we were to sum everything up that Jesus says about prayer in the Gospels into one word, it would be the word ask. Jesus calls us to ask, and that he says that when we ask, we're to expect that God will answer. In fact, not to just expect it, but to know it. Asking is commanded because of the assumption or the reality, the truth, that we have confidence of God's answer. Jesus wouldn't tell us to ask if God didn't answer. A few weeks ago, I talked about my grandfather. My grandfather died and recently, and I was talking about his faith and how it was so inspiring to me that he would often talk to Jesus like Jesus was in the room, and that for me was like amazing, and I saw the testimony of his life uh, as he followed Jesus for nearly 60 years. But, as a, but there's a backstory to my, my grandfather's faith story, and it's essentially this, that when my grandfather and my grandmother got married, he was 19 years old. He didn't become a Christian until he was 32 years old. My grandmother was a Christian when they got married. She said she prayed every day for his salvation for 13 years until he came, finally, became, finally came to know the Lord finally came to faith in knowing the Lord. It's one of those things that you don't realize until you ask the right questions, sometimes even as you're preparing to eulogize them, and that's kind of what I came across, is my grandmother told me for 13 years I prayed for him every day that Jesus would save him, and he finally did. You know, you don't pray every day for 13 years unless you are praying with an expectation that God is going to answer that prayer. And that's what my grandmother did. Also relates to the next thing, that we should pray with, we're to pray with fervency. I use the word fervency because that's what James uses in this chapter. Uh, another reason, I think often that it's difficult for us to pray is that if we've ever tried to pray, we've actually found the actual praying part of it to be difficult. I've already mentioned how difficult it is for us to pray in the current situation that we're in and the world that we live in. It's also really difficult for us to pray, not only because of what's out there, but also what's in here, in our hearts and in our minds. You know, we have a natural desire to pray because we are people who are created in the image of God. I think all of us feel that need in some ways to connect with our creator. But because of the fall, because of our sin, of course, there is brokenness. And so every time we go to pray, we feel that tension of the brokenness in our prayer. Our minds are scattered, right? We sit down to try to pray and just everything else comes to mind other than the things that you really want to pray about and your time and your communion with God. In our hearts, there's a resistance to prayer because there is often sin that is getting in the way. There is heart attitudes and heart desires that are pulling us in different directions. I'd really rather be doing this than sitting here praying right now. Fervency means intensity, but not the kind of intensity that we might think about. It's not emotional intensity. James clarifies what he means by fervency by using the example of Elijah. And one of the examples that he uses here is certainly a really remarkable time of prayer in Elijah's life. He literally prayed that it would stop raining for three and a half years on the earth, and it did. And then when he prayed that it would rain again, it rained. But there are also two other remarkable stories about prayer in Elijah's life that you may know. One, he rose a child from the dead, the widow's son. And, second, and another one is that he, 
He called fire literally from the sky to come down onto the earth. Now, praying with fervency, as we look at Elijah's life, means praying with conviction. It's praying with a conviction of being on the same page with God's will and God's desires. Elijah didn't just pray from fi- for, fire, uh, for fire from heaven just because he wanted to see if he could do it. He prayed because God told him to. He didn't just pray for three and a half years of a drought because he really enjoyed droughts in the middle of the desert. He did that because God told him to. There was fervency because he was convicted. There was a conviction that he was on the same page with God. Now, we are not Elijah. We are not Old Testament prophets that are necessarily given direct oracles from God in our prayer life. But we do have God's Spirit in us as Christians. And we do have God's Word, which tells us what God's will is for prayer. One of the great books on prayer, classic book, was written by Eugene Peterson. It's called Answering God. And in that book, the whole premise of that book is that Uh, is that we understand who God is through his word. He communicates to us first, and prayer is answering what God has already told us about who he is and what his purposes are in the world. So our prayer life should be bathed in the word of God so that we understand what it means to pray with fervency and conviction. Tim Keller says this, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we should have asked if we knew everything that he knows. Palm Sunday is a perfect example of this. As Jesus rides in on that first Sunday beginning, Holy Week, the first day of the Passover, on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, he is riding into the city as people are waving palm branches. Now, you may know that palm branches symbolize at that time military victory. And so what they hoped was that this was going to be a king who was going to bring us military and political victory. They had been praying for the deliverance of Israel for years, generations and generations, hundreds of years. Get us out of exile. Return us to our land and a king that will reign like David did. And Jesus and God answers their prayer in a totally different way than what they were asking for, but also kind of in the same way, in a better way. Freedom was coming. A king was coming, but in a different way than they anticipated their prayers being answered. And so God gives us what we ask for, or what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. Certainly they wanted an earthly king like David, but how much better is is the Messiah in in who he was presenting himself to be? An earthly and heavenly king. And finally, we're to pray with faith. James tells us to pray a prayer of faith in this passage, and I think the best way to interpret this and understand what he's talking about is in terms of personal faith. It's in terms of trusting God from a personal relationship and knowing him personally. I think this has to be distinguished from how some people talk about faith and prayer, because faith can be used in such a general way that faith is almost like this power that enables my prayer to get me again the things that I really want. Faith is certainly about trusting, but the question about faithful prayer is, what is it that we have faith in? If we have faith in a circumstance, then that's the thing we're going to pray for. If we have faith in something that we want, then that's the thing that we're ultimately going to place our, our faithful prayer into. But as we talked about, when we use prayer to get something that works against our dependence upon God, we're actually working against God's purposes in prayer. The prayer of faith that James is talking about here is about trusting God and trusting God with his priorities. Namely, that God's priorities will always be to glorify himself and God's priorities will always be to draw you closer to him through prayer and every life experience that you go through in this world. Tim Keller, when talking about faithful prayer, says, 
Prayer is not merely a way to get things from God, but it's a way to get more of God himself. A great example of the prayer of faith is Moses' prayer from the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 33. If you don't know the scene, Moses is there on the top of Mount Sinai after the idolatrous event that has happened with the golden calf. And he's up there and God says to him, look, you can go into the promised land. It's prepared for you. You can have all the provisions of the, the land flowing with milk and honey and all the blessings that come with it. It's yours to take. And take the Israelites with you. But I will not go with you. And in response, Moses says this. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I, your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses recognizes that the true prayer of faith is one that asks above anything to be with God and to glorify God. When he says, how will we know that you are with us? How will, we, how will the other nations know that you are our God? What Moses is doing is basically repeating God's priority of Israel back to him, saying, look, you have set us apart so that the other nations would know that you are Yahweh. If we go into this land without you, that purpose is completely defeated. And so we won't go into that land unless you go with us. You may know that God answered that prayer. It was along with his priorities. Prayer is available because God has made himself available in the end. When we hear these wonderful words from Hebrews that we read from Hebrews chapter 4 earlier, we are being told that the door is wide open for us to approach at any time because Jesus, who is our high priest, has not only opened the way, but he's become the lamb of, of atonement for us so that that door can be opened. As I mentioned earlier, today, of course, as we've been talking about today, is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday began Holy Week, and it was the week when it became obvious to anyone who was watching through eyes of faith that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus did that week when he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey was presenting himself as the Messiah, the heavenly king who had come to his people once and for all. Matthew 25, 5 says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. You may know that Matthew was quoting the prophet Zechariah, who spoke that hundreds of years before this actually happened and said that your king is coming to you, you will know he is coming to you when he is mounted on a donkey, a colt, a beast of burden. As we close this morning, we're going to be singing a song song called Highlands. It's a song that we have sung before in here, but this song is about God being present in the shadow times and the highland times of life. One of my favorite lines, especially as it relate, relates to prayer, is this line that says, you're just not that hard to find. And the reason that God is not that hard to find is because he has come to us already in the person of Jesus. That's what we celebrate this week as we begin into Holy Week. The subtitle of this song is also the Song of Ascent, reminding us of the psalms repeatedly throughout the Psalter that are called Psalms of Ascent. They're part of the worship in ancient Israel, but one of those psalms says this in Psalm 24, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? And the psalmist answers by saying, only those with, a clean, hand, with clean hands and a pure heart. As this song explains, as we're going to sing together, 
We ascend the hill of the Lord because Jesus ascended the hill of Calvary. And because there is an empty grave, we ascend that hill with the full assurance that we are just as that person who the the psalmist describes, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That it's because of the righteousness of Jesus won for us on our behalf that we have pure hands and a clean heart to ascend the hill of the Lord, his dwelling place. So that whether we are in the highlands of life or the shadows of life, he is not that hard to find because he has come to us. So as we sing this in a moment, let that be your prayer as we sing it together. But let's pray as we close. Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that um, you have given us this wonderful thing called prayer. You've given us the ability to converse with you, to lay our needs before you, to ask with expectation. Father, to be transformed just by being in your presence. Prayer is all of these things. And we confess that far too many times we have taken this wonderful thing that you have won for us. Where you have told us that because of Jesus who is our high priest, the one who is the Lamb of God, who has made atonement for us, that we can approach the mercy seat of God at any time we want. And Father, far too many times we look at that and say, no thanks. Lord, I'm busy. We'll do it later. Father, I pray that this morning we would, you would help us to see all that you have done so that we might be with you. And prayer is one of those things that reminds us over and over again of the immediacy of your love, your grace, your mercy, your presence in our lives. And so whether than being condemned, Lord, may we just stand with open hands knowing that you invite us And looking at that invitation as one of the great blessings that we have in this life. One of the greatest things we could dedicate our lives to on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis is in conversing with the living God who has created us, who has redeemed us, and who desires to dwell with us as he prepares a future for us. And as we think about Holy Week and all that it means, all of those steps that Jesus makes to the cross, and the victory that you have given to us because of his resurrection. May it not be lost on us about what you have won on our behalf so that we might be drawn closer to you. May prayer be the heartbeat of who we are. We want to be prayerful people not just because it sounds good and it sounds like what Christians should do, but we want to be prayerful people because we get to delight in the joy of of our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website, at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. He's just not that hard to find. He has come to us, and this week as we think about what it means for us to approach this week, 
leading up to Good Friday as we meet again for worship on Friday night and then Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord may become even more and more apparent to you and maybe it's through your prayer life that he is not that hard to find, that he has come to you so that you might know him. This morning as you leave, speaking of prayer, we have uh, prayer cards that are located at the table as you leave this morning. We want to invite you to submit any prayer requests that you have. We delight in being able to pray with you, as James just tells us in James chapter 5. We just read today the importance of community coming alongside and praying for those who are sick, praying for those who are suffering, praying for those who are in need, and yes, even praying for those who are rejoicing right now because they see what God is doing in their lives. We, 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 uh, we see that as an opportunity, as a privilege to be able to pray with you. And so if you would... If you, if you have anything that you would like us to pray about, we pray for these things as a staff, as a prayer team, as well as an elder team. If you would fill out one of those prayer cards and drop it in one of the black offering stands as we leave this morning, we would appreciate that and make sure it gets to the right place. Hope you all have a great week. Celebrate Holy Week this week in the light of what's to come as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.